0: Hey Pioneers, welcome to episode number 313. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about growing your own mini fruit garden, specifically growing fruit trees in small spaces and in containers. We're gonna be talking about how to pick the right variety, including rootstock, if you plan on growing your fruit trees in containers, the best type of containers, as well as the care that you will need to make sure you're doing in order to have success and longevity of these fruit trees when you are growing them in containers. Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris. I'm the best-selling author of several books, including The Family Garden Plan, as well as a fifth-generation homesteader who believes that living homegrown and handmade using simple modern homesteading Creates a healthier and more self sufficient life. I also believe that everything looks and tastes better when it comes in a mason jar. And I am so excited and thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, which is Christy Wilhelmite, the founder of Garden Nerd, which is the ultimate resource for garden nerds, where she publishes newsletters, her popular blog, top ranked podcast, and YouTube videos. Christy specializes in small space organic vegetable garden design, consulting, and classes. Between 70 to 80% of her family's produce comes from her garden of less than 300 square feet. You can see why I was very excited to have Christy come onto the podcast because I know many people would like to grow fruit trees, but they're not on their forever homestead or maybe they're renting or perhaps they don't like myself, have the exact climate in order to grow certain varieties here in the north, where I live in the Pacific Northwest, where it's a little bit too cold in order to grow citrus trees. But Christy is going to be covering about how you can use growing fruit trees in pots in order to take advantage of microclimates. What you need to know if you have really cold winters or extreme temperatures in with the containers, picking the right depth and size of containers as well as the correct type of fruit and she has some fabulous tips to help us keep the fruit for ourselves and stop the invasion of critters aka wildlife and pests who often like to steal all of our hard work before we are able to do so. Today's podcast is sponsored by ButcherBox. So with being able to grow our own fruits and vegetables, while I do believe that raising your own meat is ideal, many people aren't at the spot and able to do that, which is why I am thrilled to have ButcherBox be a sponsor of the podcast. So for those who don't have a local farmer or aren't able to raise their own meat, they can still get high quality, delicious, 100% grass-fed beef free-range organic chicken, heritage-bred pork, and wild-caught seafood. One of the types of seafood that my family is able to harvest for ourselves, we can go out into our little local bay. We have a little 17-foot, very old, 20, almost 30-year-old ski boat, actually. And we're able to get Dungeness Crab here where we live. But that's about the only type of seafood that we're able to get and provide for ourselves. And my husband loves Seafood. I'm honestly, I'm kind of a take it or leave it. I am not a huge seafood aficionado, but he really, really loves it. And lobster isn't something that we're able to get uh, locally, fresh caught, or go and get ourselves. So it's something that we don't have rarely, if ever. But I got my first, one of my first boxes from Butcher Box actually included lobster tails. They come already shucked. I know that's what we call it when we're getting the meat out from the crab you're shucking it out of the, the legs and everything like that i don't know if that's actually what they call it when it comes to lobster as you can see i don't know that much about seafood but it came packaged great i was a little hesitant ordering meat i have to say when it's shipping like that through through the mail well not the united states postal service ours actually came through fedex but i was a little bit nervous especially with seafood but I was pleasantly surprised when it came. It was packed very, very well. We actually got it quite late in the day because we lived so far out, the driver didn't realize how far out we were, but when I opened it up, everything was still froze solid, and the lobster tails were great. My husband was really excited with them. And we also tested their steaks against our own grass-fed beef. And they were really good. We were highly impressed. The great thing is... ButcherBox is offering new members both free lobster tails and ribeye steaks in your first box so you can celebrate summer to the fullest. This is a limited time offer and it's available for new members when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today. So you will get two five ounce lobster tails and two 10 ounce ribeye steaks all free in your first box at butcherbox.com/pioneering Without further ado, let's get straight to our interview. Christy, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much, Melissa.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, this is an area we were chatting right before we started to record. And then I'm like, okay, we got to say this for when we're actually recording, uh, that I, I have a lot of experience. I was explaining to Christy, I have a lot of experience with growing fruit trees and orchards and berry bushes, but I don't have any experience growing them in containers. And so I'm really excited for her to talk to us about about that along with some other stuff if you're like well i still want to grow fruit trees and not necessarily just in containers it's going to pertain to that but we also are really going to talk about that because i know a lot of you have been contacting me and saying that you are not in your forever homestead yet some of you are renting or some of you know you're looking at property and you want to move soon but you want to get a jump start on some of your fruit and your perennials and especially with fruit trees and being able to grow those in containers Uh, definitely allows you to do that and then you can take them with you but even with growing either in the ground or in containers um, there's a lot of things with fruit that i feel like feels a little bit uh not really mystical is the right word but people are have a lot of questions and it's a little bit more complicated than just going and you know picking out a garden plant to put in like your annual vegetable garden like a tomato or just grabbing a packet of seeds and growing you know carrots or something like that with the fruit trees so Christy, let's kind of start at the beginning, so to speak. And what is it that people need to know about selecting the right fruit tree?
1: Well, from the very beginning, if you're going to be growing in a container, the, and even if you're not, if you're going to be growing in the ground, the important thing to look for or do your research about is rootstock. And for those who are not familiar with rootstock, rootstock is the base of a grafted tree. And rootstock is usually determined by the species that's being grafted onto it. It has to be compatible. And it also determines the size of the tree at maturity. So standard size trees are going to grow to be, you know, anywhere from depending on the type of tree you're growing, from, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 feet tall, a semi-dwarf will grow to about 75% of that, or you know, between 50 to 75%. A dwarf will be somewhere between 30 and 50% and a miniature will be even smaller than that, which they're kind of hard to find, but you can sometimes find those, those uh, out there. And the other thing about rootstock that's important is that most of the time they are selected for either disease resistance or uh, soil-borne issue resistance, like root rot or anthracnose or other pathogens that are living in soil. So if you are, not, if you are planting in the ground, you wanna select a variety that is going to work in the soil that you have. Or you know, know what diseases your soil has, find out what diseases and drainage issues that you have. And then choose the smallest size tree you can. And I know that sounds weird, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but that is what I recommend for small space gardeners. Uh, And the reason is that when you, you know, most of us are choosing trees because we imagine them big, or maybe we grew up in houses that had big, giant trees. But if you remember, like how, who got the tree, the fruit, who got the tree fruit at the top? did you get the fruit at the top or did the squirrels get the fruit at the top? Right. Or the birds. Oh,
0: the the birds birds are my plague.
1: (laughs) Right. So the birds, the raccoons, the squirrels, the rats, whatever you name it. Um, Having a large tree that you can't harvest is in my mind, it's like, what's the point? Okay. Yes. It might provide some shade for you and that's great. Uh, And habitat for other lives on the planet, which is also great. but If you're growing fruit for yourself, the idea is to have a small tree, keep it pruned. And we can talk about, I'm sure we're gonna dive into that in a bit. Keep it pruned to the size that you can reach. And then uh, the tree's rootstock will keep it to a decent size so it won't overwhelm your yard, your small space. Uh, So that's one of the, that's really the, the place to start okay and then, yeah we can go we'll go down this rabbit hole with more questions
0: yeah i actually i do have a couple of questions because um one i have not i did not actually realize there was a tree category i guess variety smaller than dwarf so you mentioned miniature so and i know you said that those can be hard to find but for someone who's listening i know they're going to have the same question i do like i haven't seen those at our local nurseries Have you found them online? Is there like specific online nurseries where you've seen miniature or do you have any tips for finding miniature fruit trees? If someone is like, I need the tiniest possible and that's going to be a miniature.
1: Yeah. You know, the only real example I've seen of miniature out in my world is there's a, there's a particular type of pomegranate that is a miniature and it's meant to be grown in a pot. And you know, it's really tiny and it makes little tiny pomegranates, but, or actually it makes full-size pomegranates, but it's a, like a little bush. It's, you know, that kind of thing. So most people at the nurseries will find semi-dwarf as the smallest or dwarf as the smallest variety. So semi-dwarf is the bigger, dwarf is the smaller. And if you can get that, that's the direction I would go for most people
0: yeah yeah especially in containers or small spaces i absolutely agree in fact we have lots of acreage but i knew i wanted multiple trees and lots of them and fitting them in one specific section of our property so almost all of mine are semi-dwarf not all but a good portion of mine are actually semi-dwarf instead of standard which brings me to my next question though because we were talking about rootstock and why rootstock is selected for various reasons as you just um, outlined for us but if you say you like oh I already bought a standard and it was small, you know, it was like a whip or it was just a, a one-year-old, you know, bare root stock, for example, and I potted it in this big pot, but it is a standard. Can you just with pruning practices keep that as a small tree or is it still best to go with the root stock of an actual semi-dwarf or dwarf or can your pruning practices keep it whatever size you need be or is it a combination of both?
1: Well, it is a combination of both. Um, Anything that isn't pruned is going to do what nature intended. And, uh, you know, also the idea behind pruning is not to wreck the tree. You don't want to butcher a tree. And so with a standard, it's going to have, you know, nature intends for it to grow to 15 to 20 feet tall or more. But with pruning, especially as a young tree with, you know, a whip like you mentioned or, or a bare root, you're going to be able to manipulate that tree a bit more and it won't it won't suffer as much if you were trying to cut back an already established standard tree to this to the height that you desire you're really having to to butcher the tree in order to do that so from a young age you can manipulate a tree a lot better i think so so it is a little bit of both um in containers, it's also about the root system and, you know, roots in trees, they go out and down, or especially out as far as the drip line. And when it, in a container, of course, they can't do that. So they're going to circle or air prune, depending on what kind of container you've put them in. And so the, the more appropriate size you can get of a tree for a container, the happier it will be.
0: And that makes perfect sense so i love that you actually brought up air pruning because we just had in a previous episode uh, where we're talking about grow bags and why they can be really beneficial as a container because of the air pruning factor and stopping you know the the circling of of roots so um listeners are are familiar with that but in regards to containers for fruit trees um do you have any best i mean obviously pick i feel like as large of container as possible the tree is going to do better But as far as depth versus width, or as we just mentioned, grow bag, you know, versus a different type of material as your container, do you kind of have some best practices or things to consider when people are going that route?
1: Yeah, I usually
0: recommend starting
1: with a 20 inch diameter and height up to 24 inch diameter and height, like the best, that's going to be the best thing for fruit trees almost always. Whiskey barrels, you know, half whiskey barrels are great too, because they're nice and wide and they're pretty deep as well. Um, and depending on the variety, for example, citrus trees actually don't mind being a little compacted into a into a, a container, um, whereas others are going to really try and grow out the root, um, grow their roots down through the drainage hole, which has happened to me, and <laughs> I've written about <laughs> it in the book. Um, put your stuff on a saucer or on a cement patio or someplace where, if you're putting it on soil elevate it so that it doesn't so the roots don't grow through the drainage hole because that's a fun rescue attempt later on in life let me
0: tell you okay i love that. i love that you shared that tip because sometimes there's things until you've done it you Mm -hmm. have no idea that it's even that it's even going to happen it's something that you need to be warned or thinking about ahead of time so i love i love getting to talk to folks who have had lots of real life experience it could be like hey this is one thing you really need to pay attention to. Cause that's not something that's often talked about really when you talk about growing fruit trees in containers um, is that aspect, but yeah, that would not be very much fun. Did the tree survive? I have to ask now. Did well, it?
1: yeah. So, so one of the things I did a YouTube video about it, actually, if you search uh garden nerds, YouTube channel for how to save a pot bound tree uh, you'll find it. It was an apple tree and the basically you have to sacrifice either the tree or the pot in most cases, because the roots, that grow through, sometimes they may be just feeder roots and it's not a big deal if you cut them off, but I have killed a tree that way by cutting off the tree, the the roots in order to save the pot. And in my case, it was a terracotta pot that I didn't care too much about. So I broke the pot, released the absolutely anaerobic, garbagey smelling root ball from its its prison. And (laughs) it was awful. And let it dry down a little, you know, for maybe half an hour while I dug the hole and then, uh, put it in the ground and it's full of little baby apples right now. Um, so oh. it's doing its thing a couple of years later and it survived and it's thriving in its new home in the ground. Um, yeah. So I had it on, on the ground in the soil. I mean, I had it in a pot that was sitting on soil with no saucer or elevation underneath it. So it, dro- it drove itself straight through the drainage hole. And then, of course that blocked any drainage and it just filled up with water and became sad and it dropped all the leaves. and I thought I was going to lose it, but it's fine now.
0: Oh, I love a happy ending. Yes. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that it made it, which actually, so that was a terracotta pot, which kind of leads me to the next thing. We, we talked about size um, for fruit trees and having them elevated, but as far as the actual pot material, are there some that are more preferred than others?
1: I think it's more of an aesthetic and and uh, budgetary choice that people will make. So, you know, I try to stay away from you know get the pot get the plants out of the black nursery pot as soon as you can because black absorbs heat and uh, that's really going to fry the roots if you're in a really hot place that gets uh, really high temperatures for an extended period of time. Uh, but in terms of the difference between plastic, ceramic, wood um terracotta stone those kinds of things it's, it plastics are less expensive but they do become brittle over time and i i do have a tree in a big giant plastic pot and it is it has a gaping hole in the side of it from where the root ball has pressed its way through and it's split open and i'm just like god i really need to transplant this um <laughs> But it's also grown through the drainage hole and is anchored in the ground. It's doing really well, despite its circumstances. Um, so, you know, and then so plastic is brittle, but cheap. Um, it photodegrades over time. It also is not porous, so it holds water a little bit better. When you get into the ceramic, you know, unglazed pots, those are more porous and they will dry out more quickly. But they're. They're a little more aesthetically pleasing, and they age well over time. And then the glazed pots are usually more expensive. they hold water better because uh, they're they're sealed on the outside, and then stone is really heavy. so if you if you are growing in a place with high winds and you have a swimming pool, do buy the heavier more expensive pots because they will hold that tree in you know in place during a windstorm instead of what my parents did where they had ficus trees in plastic pots around the pool and they'd always end up in the pool, always, every summer, (laughs) be in the pool. So
0: it happens. That happens. Okay, those are really good tips to know. Um, And really for longevity of a tree. So Mm -hmm. say you're like, okay, I'm starting these in, in containers, but I think we're, you know, within a year or two, our hope is that we'll be moving to someplace bigger. Or a different spot so we want to take these trees with us so they're you know the assumption is they're just going to be in pots for maybe a year or two but then you know life can throw us surprises or plans change or whatever so i i guess what i'm getting at with here and where i'm going is is can you grow a tree in a pot basically like forever or for the lifespan of the tree you know like say 10 years or so Um, And I know like you may as a tree grows, um, you may need to pot up depending upon how small it was when you got it and the size that you put it on. But I mean, will a tree be successful if it has to stay in a container for its lifespan? I've
1: seen some pretty mature trees in 24 inch boxes, you know, big, really large containers. Um, It does it does happen. You may have to repot it. Sometimes you have to take the tree out add some fresh soil on the bottom, trim the roots a little bit, and put it back in. Um, Generally speaking, the trees I've grown have wanted to be in soil after a while. Excuse me. There it is. (laughs) That frog jumped out. (laughs) Jumped out. (laughs) But I know with good care and proper above-ground pruning, you will be able to keep a tree fairly happy in a container for the life of the of the tree. Yeah.
0: Okay. So for those who are growing in really small spaces, like balconies or small patios, or maybe just like a little nook type porch area that gets, you know, sunlight. um, Do you have any, you know, really good tricks for those really small spaces?
1: Sure. Two of the things we explore in Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden is The idea of multi-fruit trees and espalier techniques and espalier I'll start with because that's basically growing some tree in a two dimensional space. So up against a wall uh, in a small, you know, if you only have a little one foot strip of soil along your building, you can stick it in there and the roots will develop below concrete or whatever is in the way. Uh, And the wall is going to serve as the trellis for this tree that you can train in both directions. And it won't stick out too much into the space that you, you know, your, your, your space that you occupy. Um, and you can do this with uh, uh, stone fruits. You can do it with palm fruits. So apples, pears, quince. You can do it with pretty much anything. Citrus is a little trickier because citrus really is a bush type of tree and it wants to grow in all directions. But with all the other types of fruit trees, you can pretty much do that. The other technique that I spoke about was multi-fruit trees. And that is where many different varieties of the, same, of the same species are grafted onto a single trunk. So you can have a multi-fruit stone fruit tree that has two branches each of plum, nectarine, peach, and apricot. And that can occupy the space of one tree, but you're getting four different or five different, you know, fruits from it. Um, the trick, about multifruits is that one species, one variety will tend to take over. And it's Mm -hmm. usually the one that's facing south. So it is up to us to use what I call the iron fist of pruning to keep that aggressive uh, branch held back until the others catch up. Because it's much easier to prune back the assertive branches than to encourage the others to grow. So that is the trick there.
0: Okay, that is a really great tip because I actually have, it's really funny, I actually have one multi-fruit apple tree and it's now, oh my goodness, I think it's like, it's in the ground, but it's like, oh, how old is that thing now? Like 12 or 13 years? And I've really noticed that, that the and it is the southern side, that is so funny, but it's really, that's the predominant apple that I get off of it. There's, a, there's two other branches that are a different apple variety type and they do produce, but not anywhere near the amount uh, that the other one has. And I just thought of like, well, maybe that was the root stock and they just grafted the other branches on and that's why it is. But, but now that you say that, I'm like, oh, it's, it is the Southern exposure side. So perhaps that's the reason why too. So anyways, I thought that was very interesting. Um, but I have a question for containers and that's specifically because I live in a more Northern and a cool climate. And I get a lot of people are asking, if you live in a, in a climate and you're growing in containers, especially with perennials and something like the fruit tree. Now, I know fruit trees, especially in regards to chill hours, need some of that cold weather and they need to go into dormancy in order to be able to produce fruit. But do you have to be more careful and aware of freezing damage when they are above ground and in, in the pot? And what kind of with those temperatures would you say, like, this is what you need to be aware of or to think about, do you need to wrap them? Or are they usually fine unless you hit like a certain temperature? What, How does that work? Yeah, and it's
1: different for, uh, depending on where you live. Because there are all these microclimates, even in your own backyard, you've got a different microclimate on one side of the yard than you do in the other. And it's, uh, I've talked to a number of people. I've spoken with someone who lives in Canada. And his approach is different from someone who lives in Ohio. Um, you know, some people bring their potted trees in to the garage over winter. It's not a you know an climate controlled garage or they'll bring it onto a sun porch where it's still cold, but not, but still sunny. Um, others leave them out where they are and they wrap them. It kind of depends. And so I usually recommend that people talk to their local nurseries to find out what works in their, in their area for that specific thing. Um, I think what happens for a lot of things, oh, the, well, let me back up because the thing that's really important for Northern climates is rather than uh, it's the opposite problem that I have. So I don't get enough chill hours where I live to grow many of the things that you would grow very easily where you live. I'm in Southern California in Los Angeles and we get, I'm also coastal. So we get maybe 300 chill hours a year. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so you're probably getting upwards of, you know, eight to 1200 yes. chill hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you are apple territory, you know, pl- uh, all of the, um, the palm fruits are going to grow really well where you live. And so what, what happens with people who live in northern climates, I find that they, they tend to want to grow some of, the, some of the lower chill things like subtropical and tropical plants if they can. And what you have to make sure is that your choices of the varieties that you want to grow grow. Require, or or I should say, are in alignment with the chill hours that you get. Because if you if you buy a tree that needs fewer chill hours than you get, there's a risk that it will bloom out of season, or too early, and then another frost will come and cause damage. So that's how you can prevent damage in that way. And then in terms of protecting, I think I you know I I like to have people refer to their local sources to figure out the best solutions for where you live. Cause a lot of people can just put straw or blankets around their trees and they'll be fine through the winter. Mm-hmm. Others, others need to bring it in depending on where you live.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you said, even variety dependent, like, um, it's really funny because like an hour South of me, mm-hmm. um, we have people who can successfully grow citrus in pots. And of course they're moving it into some type of protected environment during, during, the winter usually mm-hmm. um but like like you said like a, a a garage or somewhere not like in the house or a heated greenhouse but we just being one hour more northern and up in the foothills of the mountains we are just too cold and so mm-hmm. i can't even grow like the northern bread type citrus plants that will that are supposed to grow up here or trees excuse me not plants um and so i can't and so yeah you're right just knowing knowing those microclimates is so key and though it's not a fruit tree, I do grow my strawberries in containers Mm -hmm. and I will bring them up against the side of the house during the winter months, which is a Southern exposure, you know, against the side of the house. So it's like a little pocket that stays warmer. And because there's strawberries, I can move those containers. If it's a large tree and it's not a container on wheels, that gets a little bit trickier. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't have to cover it or do anything like that. You know, I can just move it up against the house, but And so I just wanted to say, like, if you're thinking, looking at your yard and you're like, oh, I am more northern. um, And so the winter months, I'm worried about protecting it and trying to keep it a little bit more warmer. Usually a southern exposure, and especially if it's up against uh, a building that can reflect a little bit of heat, even if you're not getting a ton of daylight or direct sunlight, uh, can often be a really good spot to move plants to help them overwinter like that. Right. And you mentioned your strawberries. The same is true for things like blueberries
1: that are in pots. And if you're growing blackberries and raspberries in pots, those also can be moved indoors or blanketed or, you know, a lot of people put straw around them and they survive nicely outdoors on their own.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So this is a question that I get asked so often, and I think it's one of the the hardest things about gardening or can be one of the most frustrating things is you get all the care, right. Done. You've, you like, I've cared for this. I've picked the right varieties for my environment, like all of these things. And then critters come in and steal the harvest. Like the, the day it's ready, you're like waiting for it to reach perfection of ripeness. And then you go out to pick it and you're like, Oh, and it, there's like hardly anything left or sometimes it's completely stripped. So do you have any good tips for keeping critters? from taking the harvest before you get your share.
1: Yeah, it's a real problem, isn't it? That, that whole wildlife issue we yeah. have. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like, oh man.
1: So I have, you know, I have anecdotal experience with my own stuff and what other people have done that I've interviewed for the book and you know, other people in my circle. So what, I, what I, I recommend most of the time is physical barriers of some kind. And I know this is another thing that if you have a big tree that you can't reach, you, it's really hard to do this. But on smaller, on smaller trees, it's very easy to either uh, wrap clusters of fruit in bird netting and just, you know, tuck it in and put a zip tie around it so that only you can get it when you want it. Um, my brother uses leftover clamp shells from, you know, berries that you buy in the market or, or fruits that come, you know, in clamp shells when you, when you buy them at grocery stores, um, he snaps those around his fruit and they survive. They do well in there. Um, I have been practicing this ritual of buying, I buy maggot barriers, which are specifically, they look like pantyhose footies that you stretch over your apples to prevent coddling moth and, um, an apple maggot for specifically for that but i've been putting them on my tomatoes and my apples as well uh and the rats don't seem to take the those as often so i get about 50 percent more uh of fruit from my uh, harvest you know than than i do from unprotected uh plants you know if you have a very small tree and you want to drape the entire thing with bird netting you can do that you can put stakes around it with tennis balls on top of the stakes to drape things over the top so that the netting doesn't touch the leaves themselves. Um, others will use things like, uh, what's that called? Tangle foot around the base of the tree, or they'll put, what's it called? Uh, tree guards, you know, that prevent them yes. from climbing up. And the tree guards are mostly for, da- you know, preventing deer from chewing on the, the the bark of the tree and that kind of thing. But they can sometimes yeah. uh, can be used to apply something to that, like a, like, petroleum jelly or something really slippery so that they can't climb up the tree guard. Um, That's usually, I mean, you know, but they're going to jump from tree to tree. So if you have your trees closer than say eight feet apart or 15 feet apart, then they might just, they'll just find a way. And it's a challenge. So I also encourage people to pick their fruit, you know, check every day, pick every, every day and pick at the end of the day, Cause then it's had the day to ripen and then bring it in and put it on the counter. And some, some fruits will ripen after they're picked. Some will not, but they will soften. So pick them as close to ripeness as you can and they'll still be good to enjoy. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty much what I can think of (laughs) unless you want to build a whole greenhouse around your fruit trees.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I have found barrier methods to just be the most effective. You know, I've tried like putting human hair yeah. around, you know, like my my, my <laughs> right. husband, I cut my son and my husband's hair and so I'll take that and you know and, and tried putting that around the the especially for deer, I should say, uh for the deer because our deer love to come and nibble especially on the new growth because it's uh, higher in nutrients for them and it's more tender right, right. and so yeah. yeah and oh they drive me crazy they're not good pruners they're they're, they're horrible <laughs> pruners because they're so they just strip it and they mangle it but um yeah I've tried the human hair you know we've tried like flashing ribbon and shiny ribbon and cds and all different types of things and some of them will work in the short term I feel like I like they would maybe work for a week or two but then pretty soon they just don't care about them anymore, and so yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I've we've really found that netting, a barrier method of netting, has really been truly the only thing that that really works for us long term. I net my blueberry bushes. I just net the whole blueberry bush, and then I'll just lift the netting up underneath as I'm picking, and and we'll net the the fruit trees to keep the deer off and that. And though I I hadn't thought so, we don't haven't had to deal with rats much in the vegetable garden, but the nylons on those little nylon type footies that you were talking about. Um, that's a great idea for some of the, the larger fruit like that to keep, to keep them free. So that was a great tip.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the, um, the maggot barriers are, you know, they they're sold in a box of like 400. So they last and you can reuse them from season to season. So it's kind of a nice trick. I've also tried sprays, you know, with the predator urine or the cinnamon clove sprays and yeah they, you know, they get mixed reviews. They're not great for some. It depends on your rats. We have really assertive rats and squirrels in my neighborhood. And so we do trap rats. And And that's something that people don't like to deal with or hear about because it's supposed to be this kind of romanticized notion of growing your own food and having nothing wanting to share it with you. But that's the truth. <laughs> so we do set traps and um, we keep a balance in the population that way
0: yeah no i we actually deal well we didn't have rats previously that we were aware of but they um we had a couple of rats under our home no signs of them like in in the house or anywhere else so we didn't know we had them until we experienced water leak and then we got under the house and they had chewed through uh like eight different pipes for a water source like little tiny leaks (laughs) <laughs> and so all the underneath of my house was completely soaked, like insulation. Thankfully we caught it in time that it didn't damage the subfloor. Like we're very, very fortunate in that aspect. But we had to replace all of the pipes, all of the insulation. Like it was a whole ordeal. And so now we have traps out like everywhere. Everywhere. Um, yeah. Yes, everywhere. And I will be on they are not live traps. I am not keeping no, no rats alive. Like, yeah, like bless your heart if if you are that soul, like Thank you, but I am not keeping the rats around. So I'm, yeah. I'm with you there. Yes, they are. Um... <laughs> right, well, well the, the important
1: thing to remember, and I had somebody explain this to me to me in a way that made sense, is that, you know, prey animals like rats, they, they are um, food for larger animals and prey animals cycle through the reproduction cycle much, much faster than predator animals do you know it'll take a year predator animals will reproduce once a year rats can produce three four times a season so that is what that's what i talk about when i say balance that we have to keep balance we're not trying to exterminate the species entirely we're just trying to maintain a balance so that the predators get some and we get our produce you know what i mean
0: Yes. No, I'm yeah. in, I'm in complete agreement. Um, yeah. I even kill the slugs in my garden and I get people who get <laughs> mad at me over that. And I'm like, we have 15 acres and so many slugs in the Pacific Northwest. I am, I am in no way. And I don't, I only kill the ones in my vegetable garden eating my <laughs> plants. I leave the rest alone, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I'm with you there, but uh, this has been great. There's so many tips here. Um, Thank you so much. So for those who are listening, they're like, okay, I, I want to learn more. I want to do more of this um, and find out more of the wonderful information that you share on gardening. Um, Where's the best place for them to connect with you?
1: So if they can remember the word garden nerd, G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R-D, that is the place. That's the starting point. So I have a website, I have a podcast, I have a YouTube channel, got a blog, and then I've got three books presently uh, available on all from that website. And of course, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook under Garden Nerd One, Facebook or gardennerd.com. And uh, you'll find links to all the social media on gardennerd.com.
0: Awesome. And I'm assuming your podcast is Garden Nerd as well. Is that the name of your podcast? It's called the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. Oh, I love that because it's so funny. I. I feel like serious gardeners are like passionate gardeners. Like we are such nerds about gardening. So I I love that that is the name of it because I totally geek out about all kinds of gardening stuff. And when I find another gardener, you know, you can just sit and talk for literally hours, like swapping, you know, stories and tips and like, Oh, and anyway, so I really adore that that's your name. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It
1: used to be a two minute tip of the week that I did every week for 10 years. And then I, changed formats to this kind of interview format and I save uh, we save a a great tip for the end of the podcast so there you go
0: awesome I love it well I'm a podcast junkie so I always love finding finding new podcasts so thank you so much for coming on Christy I really enjoyed it and I know listeners are going to get such a great depth of information here on growing their fruit trees and containers (laughs) Lovely. We're in the sign off. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Uh,
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did to get any of the links or resources that we talked about. You can go to the blog post that accompanies this episode at melissaknorris.com forward slash 313. So just the numbers 313, because this is episode number 313. For my regular listeners, you may have noticed we had a few less episodes than normal last month, and that is simply because we are in the throes of the harvest, and with the coaching I'm doing within a Sustainable Business boot camp, I realized there's only so many hours in a day. I can't create any more time, and so we took a very brief break from the podcast, but we are back, and I have some amazing episodes on the horizon for you. So I can't wait to see you back here next week. Blessings and mason jars until then, my friend.